0: You will want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. So it comes after 1st and 2nd Timothy, uh, towards the back third of your New Testament. And if you get to Hebrews, go left, and uh, you will find this small book, just three chapters, the book of Titus. The, uh, and today we'll be looking at the first chapter of Titus. So will give you a moment to go there. Titus is a contemporary of Timothy. What well, we know about him, he's probably a little bit older than Timothy. He's been around a little bit more. He's done some other ministry. And uh, uh, Paul has tasked him uh, to go to Crete. So he is a missionary. This is a missionary tasking to go uh, plant and pastor a church on the island of Crete. So... Titus 1, let's listen carefully as this is God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. A little hard spots there, and we're going to get to that. Emily, Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to Paul's letter to Titus this morning to learn more about sound doctrine but the value and need for the truth, and the value and need to keep striving after godliness. And Lord, we all know this is hard. Sometimes we don't want to admit we're not nearly as godly as we pretend to be. We don't know the truth as well as others think we do. Our faith isn't nearly as strong in the face of cynical critics as we'd like it to be. And so Lord, once again, teach us what to do, teach us what to say. Teach us what to believe. Teach us how to live. Build our faith, draw us near, and help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle Paul this morning. and By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, we get to enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday in a few weeks. Actually, it's about 10 days. And for most of us, it's a great time to get together with family and friends and eat way too much food. And it can be a grand thing. But for a few, it means a lot of shopping and cooking and baking and serving and cleaning up all very ordinary things, even when they're done in a much bigger fashion than normal. I mean, if you want to cook a lot of food for a lot of people, you have to walk an aisle at Wegmans. You've got to go over to Giant and push a cart. And if you're going to have guests come to this special meal, you want it to both taste good and look good for them. So you're going to get out your best dishes and the good silverware and your nicest tablecloth. Because guests will be sitting at your table, and you're going to cook for them. In order for this grand thing to happen... You first got to clear that table. You have let stuff pile up on that table. The mail is lying there. Your laptop's open. And for some reason, you have three salt and pepper shakers. No one knows what's in the third one. So you got to clean the table off and find a place to put all that junk. You got to get out the pledge and do a little dusting you got to wipe things down, so you grab the washcloth in the sink. You have no idea how long it's been since that was washed, but you're cleaning off your counters with it. To do a grand thing, you have to do a lot of ordinary things. Now, it's the same with the gospel. To reach the world for Jesus, a grand thing, someone has to walk down King Street and Main Street And your street, ordinary things. The Apostle Paul is telling Titus we're dealing with grand things, a promise that began before any of us were even born. God is bringing to pass, for the sake of the faith, a common hope, a godliness for eternity, manifested in his word through the preaching which I've been entrusted to by the command of God our Savior. And Titus, you're my true child in the common faith. Grace to God to you, peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ to you. This is a grand thing. Now what do you think is going to come next? What grand thing would Paul give Titus to do? Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. What grand thing for eternity, promised before ages past, could you do in such a small place? I mean, Titus is gifted. He's one of Paul's go-to guys. He's one of the heavyweights. He's got his own letter in the Bible. His resume is cream of the crop. Where would you place Titus? Best resume, all this experience, one-on-one with the Apostle Paul, gifted, talented. Where is he going to go? Probably Rome, someplace really important, but not Crete. The Commonwealth of Virginia is about 10 times the size of Crete. Now, if we were just to take northern Virginia... Including Arlington, Fairfax, Loudoun, Prince William, and Stafford counties, and all the cities in them, to include Alexandria and Fredericksburg and Manassas, that's about the size of Crete. But you were really hoping to go to Washington, DC or New York, or LA, you know, someplace important, someplace grand. You are convinced God was calling you to reach everyone in Hollywood. Now you find yourself in Percival. And if Virginia is too ordinary, imagine that you're Titus. He gets left in Crete. It doesn't say I'm sending you to Crete. It says I left you. You almost get the the idea that they're going to the port and they're getting ready to get on the ship. And Paul says, wait a minute. You get to stay. We got work for you to do here. takes like, Rome. He gets left in Crete. I don't even know if I would think of Crete. It's just an ordinary place. Cook a big dinner for a lot of people to eat at your table. You got to push a cart down an aisle at Aldi's. To do a grand thing, somebody has to reach Crete. And so Paul leaves Titus there. And he leaves him there because he's given him a number of tasks to do. And most people kind of skip over the first part, which is an extended greeting. And then they skip over the last part, which is about confronting false teaching because who wants to do that? And they focus primarily on the middle section, which is about appointing godly elders, which is important. But I'm going to focus on the first and last sections. Because I think all three sections are tied together together by Paul's emphasis on the truth. Now, to most of us, the truth sounds like an ordinary thing. But to the Apostle Paul, it's a grand thing. However, in our culture today, it's almost a non-thing. After all, truth is seriously out of fashion these days. And it's out of fashion because Christians have become so beleaguered by those who have much to gain from scorning the faith. So many people have planted their flags on something other than the truth, like usefulness or comfort. It's also out of fashion because some of those who shout loudly for the truth have acquired a reputation for intolerance of diverse identities and traditions. (coughs) And so, not wanting to be thought small-minded... A lot of believers have stepped away from using the word truth. It's out of fashion. Because we live in a time and era where truth has become something to be questioned, to be discredited, to be undermined by claims of bias and privilege. And our culture would greatly prefer that we avoid the word entirely. And actually it wasn't much different in Paul's time rather than run from the word, Paul embraces it, he emphasizes it, and he encourages Titus to focus on the truth. And so he starts by talking about God's people and their knowledge of the truth, verses 1 through 4. If you have an outline, uh, that's your first blank there, knowledge of the truth. If you want one, they're on the website, you can download it, look at it on your phone, um, knowledge of the truth, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He tells Titus here that as an apostle, Paul is particularly concerned to encourage three things in the Christians there in Crete. And first he talks about the knowledge of the truth. Actually, this is not the first time Paul has used that phrase. We've just gone through First and Second Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2, he says, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Timothy uh, 2, he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. And then in 2 Timothy 3, he speaks about unbelievers who are always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So we have a knowledge of the truth that corresponds with being saved, and repentance in arriving somewhere you want unbelievers to arrive. The essential reality, we might say, is faith or coming to faith. So knowing the truth is another way of saying coming to faith. But Paul doesn't end there. He so said he wants to encourage them three ways. First, he's called to encourage them in their faith. Look at verse 1. He is a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So he wants to see the saints built up in their trust in God and their belief in his promises and their faith in Christ. Second, he says he's an apostle for the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So now he's telling you why truth, why theology, why doctrine, why biblical instruction, why biblical teaching is so important because the truth goes hand in hand with godliness. God's truth is given to us in order to cultivate godliness so that we would be more like Christ, so that we would more consistently bear the image of God as we live and witness in the world. Now, there's a sense in which godliness is not just for the future, but also for the present, the present for Titus the present for us. However, as we've seen, there's an order of things presented here. Paul doesn't command godliness so it produces faith, Rather, he preaches the truth. He wants his hearers to know the truth by faith. This knowledge, he says, accords with godliness. Faith produces godliness. What does godliness mean? There's one other mention of the word in this book, in Titus 2, where he says the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So apart from God's grace, we all live in ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, in our sin, we will not live as God himself would live in this world. On the other hand, godly lives are what God's people live in the present age. By his grace, God's people increasingly live like he'd live if he were still physically present in this world, like Christ did live when he was in this world prior to his ascension into heaven. And so what this letter makes clear, as clear as any of Paul's letters, is that this godliness is not a withdrawal from the world and from the lives of others, but rather this godliness is revealed by doing good for others. This weekend is a great example. We had the kid stuff swap, served 95 families. We have... Operation Christmas child boxes, there's a bunch of groceries for tree of life. But remember that it's faith, not our work, that gets us right with God. But faith blossoms then in doing good for others. So our knowledge of the truth doesn't send us running away, uh, running away from helping other people. Rather, it unleashes us to do good for them. God's people were told. Will be zealous for good works, Titus 2.14. Ready for every good work, 3.1. Careful to devote themselves to good works, 3.8. And he finishes the letter by saying, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful, 3.14. So we see that the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness, which is demonstrated by good works. And then the third thing he goes on to say, verse 2 is this is all done in hope of eternal life. He's not only concerned to build you up in faith, he's not only concerned to build you up in truth, he's also concerned to give you hope, a very real hope in a very dark fallen world in which we live. So hope of eternal life is not a throwaway phrase for Paul. He's telling us how good works happen. How does knowledge go to work for Christians in the world? How does knowing truth lead to doing good? How does saving faith lead to practical godliness? This letter gives us a one-word answer, hope. By hope, Paul's not talking about a wish. We often use the word hope like that. I hope it's warm tomorrow. I hope the patriots win. I hope no one else gets COVID. We often use hope for our wishes about an uncertain future. But that's not how Paul uses the word hope. This is not a wish about the uncertain. This is a well-founded faith with a future orientation. This is knowledge of the truth looking forward. And how do we know that Paul has such a strong concept of hope in mind? Because look at the very next phrase uh, there, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, Promised before the ages began. This hope, which catalyzes Christian faith into action for the good of others, is based on the word of a God who never lies. That's why Paul mentions God never lying here. God's truthfulness is absolutely critical to our hope. Our hope is as good as God's word. Our hope is not what we wish. Our hope is what God has promised, and he Never lies. Christian hope is not a virtue that originates with us. We don't muster it up. Hope in us begins with the sure and certain promises of a God who never lies. Christian hope begins with God and what He says. Now, Paul says something very similar in uh, Colossians 1. He says, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We see even there, people of faith did good for others, showing love because of their hope. Faith in the present fed hope in the future, which released the people from earthly fears in order to do good for others. So here at the very beginning, Paul explains the importance of holding to sound doctrine. And one mark of a healthy church as that's it's filled with people who love the truth, who know it's important, who are being transformed by it because the truth forms godliness in us. And that's what we aim for, not just in Crete, but also here in Northern Virginia. But that knowledge of the truth has to come from somewhere. And that somewhere is the teaching of the truth. Verses 5 through 9, the teaching of the truth. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. So you might put what remained into order, Presbyterians love that, we're all we're big on order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, we like that, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, another name for an elder, as God's steward, he must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now I'm going to skip over verses 5 to 8 because we covered all that in 1 Timothy. We'll be talking about it again when we have uh, officer nominations in January. But I want you to notice that these elders are for doctrine. They're not only for discipleship and for setting a good example. They're for doctrine. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul is specifically talking about elders here, and he says that elders are to be theologically orthodox. They are to be able to teach and to defend the faith. They are to be sound teachers of sound doctrine. The elder is zealous for the truth. He doesn't simply assent to the truth, but his heart is wrapped up in the truth. He holds fast to the faithful word of biblical teaching and teaches in accordance with that word. He's able to preach and teach and encourage and counsel with sound doctrine, has an ability to incline faithful Christians to belief and obedience, and he's able to refute those who contradict the gospel. He's able to defend the faith. But as you read that, that sounds like it's not just for elders. That should be for all of us. We would like more people to be able to teach and to defend the faith, regardless of whether they're elders or not. We'd like everyone to hold to sound doctrine. So this coming winter, after the holidays, you're going to get a theology survey, which we're going to use to design some more teaching, particularly for women, to help you do just that, hold to sound doctrine and defend the faith. So look for that. Please fill it out when we send it to you. Now, one of the most enduring books of the last 30 years is uh, Mark Devers' The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I think this is like the first official edition. There's probably about a dozen of them at this point. Um, And they've taken this book and they've expanded it into nine individual books on each of those uh, characteristics. So he has a chapter called Biblical Theology, and now there's a little book by the same title called Biblical Theology. And... uh, He says that one mark of a healthy church is good biblical theology, and he explains why. He says because good biblical theology means we have a good understanding of who God is, what God says, and what God does. In other words, sound doctrine. That's absolutely necessary if we're going to be able to offer a defense of the truth. Verses 10 through 16, a defense of the truth. Here's some of the hard verses here. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply So clearly, the Cretans are not renowned for their morality amongst their contemporaries. If we read verse 12 again, we see a rather unflattering quotation about the Cretans that apparently one of their own authors had stated about them. In fact, even today, if you call someone a Cretan, it's bad. And apparently, this new Church plant and church planning network that Paul is leaving Titus in Crete to establish, to go around and start churches and point elders in every town, is in a land that is well known for being notoriously sinful. And so Titus is left to minister uh, to a church, to believers in the context of a society that's saturated with immorality. All that sound familiar? Paul's words to Titus are timely for us because of the corresponding circumstances we face in a modern culture that's rampant with immorality. And an immorality that is permeating and penetrating Christian churches as well. In fact, it becomes apparent in this letter that one of Paul's concerns is that the immorality of the culture has impacted the congregation deeply. And he recognizes That Christ calls us to be in the world, but not of it. And yet, it seems that in this congregation here, you can say there's at least some who are of the world, but not in it. The world is in the church. And Paul is concerned that the church needs to be distinct, especially in an immoral context. And so Paul wants this new congregation in Crete, to be strongly exhorted to be countercultural in their living and biblical in their thinking. He's telling Titus, the eldership must rebuke these Christians who are fading and falling under the pressure of a constant cultural assault. All of which makes Titus incredibly relevant. How do you live out the faith in a really difficult, immoral place like Crete or Virginia? How do you respond when Christianity is consistently despised or belittled by people in Crete or Virginia? Where most people find it irrelevant or even stupid in Crete and in Virginia. Now there's little doubt about what's going on in our world, but at least in the church, we rarely get such head-on assaults on what we believe. What we do often get is a watered-down version of what we believe. Enough to sound sort of right, but we're not sure, but not strong enough really to build our faith. Now, I mentioned uh, Mark Devers' book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and in it he gives us an example of what a defense of the truth might look like. It's a long quote, uh, but he writes, uh, I had made a statement in a seminar about God. And Bill responded politely but firmly that he liked to think of God rather differently. For several minutes, Bill painted a picture uh, for us of a friendly deity. He liked to think of a God as being wise but not meddling, compassionate but not overpowering, ever so resourceful but never interrupting. This, said Bill, is how I like to think about God. Now Mark's reply was perhaps something sharper than it should have been, by his own admission. And he said, thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself. But we're here to study God. We want to know what he's really like, and not simply about our own desires. The seminar was silent, as they took in this potential breach of politeness on my part. But they also took in the point. So I made some appreciative noises towards Bill and we got on with our discussion about the nature and character of God as revealed in the Bible. What do you think God is like? Not what do you like to think God is like, but how do you put together the God of Christmas with the God of the great judgment on the final day? What is your understanding of God and what he is like? To some folks, this whole discussion may not be relevant. However, this inattention to belief fits our culture's impatience with detail. In our society today, beliefs have been domesticated. We no longer fight about them. We don't argue about them. We may not even care about them. After all, we think so many beliefs are merely passing fashions or momentary expressions of individual wants or desires. This is all still marked ever. Americans create designer religions and smorgasbord faiths. I'll take a little of this from Hinduism and a little of that from Christianity and a little of this from my grandmother, I don't even remember what she was, and put it all together as our own individual unique religion. Today people believe to be true what they desire to be true. Long-held Christian beliefs about everything from the nature of God to morality have been reshaped and have become unimportant to so many people. They have been jettisoned in the name of making Christianity more relevant, more palatable, more acceptable to today's hearers. So how relevant are your beliefs to your life? When you sit here in church, how much do you examine the words of the prayers that you heard or said? How much do you think about the words of the songs you sing? How about the words you heard from Scripture? Does it really matter to you if what you said or what you sang or what you prayed was true? I mean, if I attend church and I'm friendly and I feel encouraged and I give my time there and maybe even give some money, how much does it really matter if in my heart I really don't believe all the stuff people want me to say? Or maybe even that I do say. How important are religious beliefs? End quote. That was all Mark Dever. And he's asking this question, how important is doctrine? How important is theology? How important is what we believe about God? And I think Paul would respond as he has here, you must, not that you should, you must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that you may able to give instruction, may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He doesn't say it's a good idea. He says you must. Paul's solution to this situation is to the point, but the reality is off. It's, it's really pastoral as well. It sounds harsh. We're told, verse 13, Rebuke them sharply. Addressing a church that has been lax and hesitant to deal with false teaching. Paul's very firm in his instructions. As the surgeon cuts away diseased and infectious tissue that threatens the health of the body, we have to cut away toxic teaching. But what is our goal in performing this spiritual surgery? It's pastoral. It's redemptive. It's those who are self-deceived and deceiving others, Paul says, may be sound in the faith. We're not punishing them. We're trying to restore them. We cut to cure. We operate to liberate those who are trapped in the quicksand of spiritual bondage and malnutrition. So we do confront but we do it in love. And we love them enough to point out their errors with the goal of restoring them to spiritual health. Now, one of the great issues of our day is not the outright denial of Christian doctrine, although that's a big issue, but the inability of many people, particularly young people, to believe anything at all as true anymore. We've long been warned about the potential of social media to distort our view of the world. And now there's the potential for more false and misleading information to spread on social media than ever before. And just as important, exposure to AI-generated fakes can make us question the authenticity of anything we see. Real images and real recordings can be dismissed as fake. Because most people can't tell the difference between what is AI-generated and what is real. Dr. David Rand is a professor at MIT. And he studies the creation, spread, and impact of misinformation. And he said in an article uh, published, was, uh, I think yesterday, in the Wall Street Journal. said and It may have been their online uh, Wall Street Journal. He said, when you show people deep fakes and generative AI, a lot of times they come out of the experiment saying, I just don't trust anything anymore. Another researcher in the same article, (coughs) excuse me, said the combination of easily generated fake content and the suspicion that anything might be fake allows people to choose what they want to believe. Overall, it's leading to a dramatic increase in cynicism. Now, I looked up cynicism. It literally means to distrust the motives of others by showing contempt for the accepted standards of honesty or morality. Another description of someone who is cynical Disbelieves selfless acts. Their working assumption is that all actions, even good works on behalf of others, are ultimately selfish. I help you solely because it makes me feel good. We're living in times where cynicism is not only acceptable, but in some places it is expected. It is mainstream and even admired. And by cynicism, I mean this general disinclination to trust others, especially anyone in authority, or the inclination to believe the worst in others and of the world altogether. That is increasingly the air that we breathe, the atmosphere that we live in. Now, this mood of cynicism didn't appear out of nowhere. It's the result of secularism, a pretense that there is no God, or at least he's off-limits in public discourse and polite company. And secularism offers no firm hope, and so it soon produces cynicism, and cynicism begins to pick at the basic pillars and long-standing givens of human life and civilization, one after the other. So secularism breeds cynicism. And cynicism doesn't breed productive action. It breeds laziness. It breeds disbelief. And that's what it did on the island of Crete in Titus' day. And that's what it does in our day. And thus Paul's letter to Titus is written to counter the unbelief and the laziness of Crete and its false teachers. And we need to use it today to counter the unbelief and laziness of false teachers here where we live. Paul writes with a counter-cultural message. Just as counter-cultural today as it was then. And that's because it's a message of hope. And that is something sorely lacking in the world, in the culture, in our society. Genuine hope, objective hope, hope that affects productive lives. In verse 2, he mentions the hope of eternal life. Later, in Titus 3, he uses the exact same phrase, the hope of eternal life. What cynicism gets right is that we are indeed living in a fallen world. Our world is not what it was at the beginning. The human race sinned, sin entered in and remains. We're born in sin. And if there is no God, then there is indeed a lot to be cynical and hopeless about. And this is precisely where we as Christians can say we can hear you on the doctrine of sin, even though you don't call it that. We believe this world is messed up in many ways, and there is a lot to be critical of. But we believe the story doesn't end there. We believe in redemption. We believe in change. We believe in grace. We believe in Jesus. We have hope, genuine, real, everlasting hope. We reject cynicism because we have hope. And one reason that hope is so important in this letter is it's the opposition that Titus is facing. They're not hopeful. They're not truthful. They're not helpful. They're not fruitful. The problem, people in Crete do a lot of talking and not a lot of practical good. They're empty talkers and deceivers, verse 10, who must be silenced, verse 11. They're not just liars but lazy, verse 12. They profess to know God but deny him by their works, verse 16 you think about those things, you realize we're not nearly so far removed from first century creed as we would like to think. Each Sunday, this worship service is a fork in the road for us. Just as Christian faith in general is a fork in the road. Will we walk the world's path of unbelief leading to cynicism, leading to lazy, unproductive lives? Or will we be people of faith, God's elect, who have his never-lying promises, and have solid hope that frees us from ourselves in order to do good for others. After all, how was it that the consummate man of faith, God himself in human flesh, the author and perfecter of our faith, did the single greatest good of all time? What propelled Christ against the greatest possible obstacles to go to the cross? It was hope. Faith looking to the future and seeing the reward. That's how Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 12:2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is not wishful thinking about the future. The eyes of faith looking to the future and realizing and tasting that this outcome is as good as the promises of God. This hope is as solid as God's word. Truth builds faith, faith cultivates godliness, godliness feeds hope, hope produces love that's seen in our good works. But it all begins and ends with Jesus. And that's exactly what Titus is going to tell us throughout this whole book. That's how he ends this book. He's going to tell us in chapter 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our hope is not what we wish. Our hope is what God has promised. And he Never lies. Time to thank him for that truth. Do that now and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a Savior. Thank you that you have brought us into a relationship with you where you speak and we listen. Father, we say we love your word, but we don't always live like we do. Help us to teach and to hear your word. Help us to align our lives with that word. Help us to be people who train ourselves for godliness because we have our hope set on the living God. And we only pursue godliness through the strength of the Holy Spirit who meets us in our weakness and in our doubts and even in our cynicism. Let us know the truth, build our faith, make our hope sure and certain so all this may result in change lives. In the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.